Okay, so we are at our final session. Uh, this message is titled, Only God Satisfies. And um, I want to just start off by just kind of giving us a, a little bit of background about what we're going to jump into this morning. Um, Jacob is the third member of the, of the patriarch trinity. You may recall that his grandfather is Abraham. We talked about him last night. And his father is Isaac. Long, long ago, in a land far, far away, God told Abraham, I'm sending you out into the world to save the world from sin. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. From here on out, I'm going to choose one person from each generation through whom I will pour out my blessings. In your family, Abraham, it's you. In your children's generation, it'll be Isaac. And in Isaac's line, it'll be Jacob. So it appeared that the destiny of the chosen one was set. If Abraham does his part, he would pass on his blessing to Isaac and then Isaac to Jacob. That's the way it was supposed to work. But because of cultural bias and sin, Isaac favored Esau, Jacob's older brother. And as a result, most of Jacob's childhood, he lived in the shadow of his older brother. But Jacob was no slouch. When Esau was desperate for a bowl of soup, Jacob wagered out of him his birthright. Jacob would live up to his namesake, the one who deceives. Rebekah, Jacob's mother, also did not hesitate to take matters into her own hands. When her husband Isaac was old and gray and about to dispense his blessings to his oldest son Esau, she had Jacob dress up like Esau. So that he could steal his blessing. When Esau learned what Jacob had done, he was furious. Furious enough to kill Jacob. To protect her son, Rebekah sends him away to her brother Laban. And this will be the last time that Jacob will see his mother. While with Laban, Jacob falls in love with his youngest daughter, Rachel, who the Bible says was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob makes it his personal life mission to marry Rachel. But on his wedding night, through the trickery of his uncle, he ends up consummating with Rachel's older sister, Leah. In those days, the bride was not allowed to remove her veil until after consummation. So if you're wondering how that possibly happened. <laughs> but what a mess. Jacob is in love with one sister, but is married to both of them now. A lot of drama. One is dearly loved, and the other is ignored. One is lovely in form, and the other apparently not so lovely in form. How does God's man handle such adversity? What would you do if you were in this situation? This morning's message is about keeping God at the center of our lives, even when our life seems to be falling apart. Keeping Him central and everything else a distant second. So let's go ahead and, and read this morning's passage. <clears throat> when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is sh because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him 
Simeon. And again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, and she stopped having children. So she named him, uh, see, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, I, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? This is a uh, very interesting look at uh, the line of God. I mean, if there's any royalty in the Bible in terms of family line, it would be the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, and really, at first instance, maybe most of us would think, well, if this is the royal line of God, there must not be many problems, right? This if this is the royal line of God, there's not, we're not going to see a lot of sin, right? In fact, we actually see the exact opposite. And in some ways, it's encouraging to all of us who are in the room who are trying to live a Christ-centered life. Because a Christ-centered life is not devoid of struggles. A Christ-centered life is not devoid of, of dealing with strongholds. Now, the strongholds back then may have been very different than the strongholds we have today. But nonetheless, what we see in the royal line of God is, are, are similar habits and tendencies that, that are characteristic of us. And the first principle, or actually I want to share with us, that we see with the royal family of God is that they too, when they have inner emptiness, like us, actually go looking for temporary security. Believe it or not. That they too, the royal line of God, that Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, Jacob line that we know so well. In fact, God has associated himself with that name. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So we all know that refrain. So it's not unfamiliar to us to think of God's people as like, wow, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're like the holy trinity of families, right? And yet, what we see with this royal line is something... Similar, the dynamic that we often face in our lives. And I think the Bible is written in such a way that God's people can relate to, to godly struggles with God's people. And I want to really take a look at the lives of Jacob and Leah and Rachel, at the, the nature of these struggles and, and how, how they wrestle with this inner emptiness that they have and they actually do go looking for temporary satisfaction. And I want us to think about how we do that and perhaps there's a relevance there. And that as they come out of this inner emptiness and filling it with God himself, that perhaps we can do the same. If we start with Jacob, we see that he was a man, that he was a fugitive on the run. I mean, this is a guy that is, is, is literally like, like Isaac, I mean, Esau wants to kill him because he stole his birthright, Right? When we catch up with Jacob, he's actually 500 miles from home. He will not see his mom, right? So this is a pretty lonely path that he's on. He's lonely, he's isolated, he's away from home, and yet there's something inside of him that says, man, if I had some friends, if I had a certain type of person, maybe this inner emptiness wouldn't be so bad. And he meets up with Rachel and he has some of that inner emptiness that fulfills him. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, where Rachel had, was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Really, 
you, you read these verses and there's nothing illegitimate about his desires to marry someone he's in love with. And I, and I think that, you know, when we read these verses, I don't, I, don't, I don't see anything in these verses that might indicate that he's operating out of something else besides a sheer love for Rachel. But if we look a little bit closer at Scripture, what we see a little bit later is we, see, we read these words. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to lie with her. You know, Hebrew scholars try to interpret those last verses right there. Give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. They almost want to make, make up what, what they wanted to say. Because it literally says, I, I just want to have sex with her. I want to be with her. But Hebrew scholars, they, want, they don't want that to be the actual translation because it makes Jacob look crass unsophisticated, like, dude, like, you have these desires, hold, you know, <laughs> exercise some self-control. Chances are very likely this guy, this fugitive, this guy who's on the run, 500 miles from home, isolated, lots of inner emptiness, is probably saying to himself, man, maybe this inner emptiness would be a little bit lighter if I had someone like Rachel. And that the possibilities of that, is, this dynamic is actually quite strong because we also see it in the other two. We see it in Leah, we also see it in Rachel. In Leah, when the Lord saw that, the, that Leah was loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Now listen to this. Surely my husband will love me now. Now, I read that. It doesn't seem like she's trying to have children because she loves kids and wants to have a family. She's like, no, I, I'm struggling too. And I'm married to a pretty good guy. And if I can get this guy to love me, maybe some of that inner emptiness would go away as well because Rachel was the one that he really wanted. Earlier, we read from the text that Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form. It's kind of an interesting phrasing, don't you think? You know, um, the way the Bible is written, a lot of times in, in, when, they, when you read phrases like that, it's called parallelism, right? That there's something similar about that statement. But it, you, it draws in the question like, oh, okay, what does that mean? Um, you know, Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form. I mean, shouldn't it read something like, Leah had weak eyes, right? And Rachel could see 2020? <laughs> you know, like, wow, they, she, Leah didn't have good eyesight, right? And so, so Rachel must have been like, really had great eyes. Well... If you really read it, you know, you, uh, weak eyes was a euphemism for physical appearance. If Rachel was lovely in form, chances were very likely that Le- Leah was not attractive at all. In fact, she was probably an ugly duckling. In fact, most of her life, being compared to her sister, she probably always felt like she was second fiddle, even though she was older. I could only imagine as, as men in the villages, you know, were kind of, you know, seeking their future mates. And all these suitors are, are knocking on the door of Rachel. And they're knocking on the door, hey, is Rachel home? And, and how many times those suitors must have walked right by Leah to get to Rachel? Now, what does that do to the psyche of a woman? To be overlooked all those times by these male suitors over and over that she was the one with the weak eyes. She was the one that was not lovely informed. My guess is that she must have developed a lot of inner emptiness, that it, was, it must have been hard, and, and Laban must have known that. And then why did he secretly try to have her 
married off first because he probably knew that he wasn't, she wasn't going to get married off, that she wasn't attractive. Now, what does that do to a psyche of a woman growing up under the shadows of an attractive sister? I don't think it's just a guess. It was very probably likely that she had a lot of inner emptiness. But when she finally got Jacob, when she finally got married, and said, boy, man, if I had him, though, man, I'd, maybe I'd be a different person. If I had a few more kids, maybe some of that inner emptiness would go away because, you see, Jacob would now really love me. We see this inner emptiness seeking out temporary satisfaction in Jacob, one of the, the royal lines of God. We see this also in Leah with the one with weak eyes seeking Temporary satisfaction by having kids and trying to say, well, now my husband will really love me. Rachel was no different. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Now you tell me, is that the utterance of someone who's living in the heart of God's will and the peace of God? It's like, well, if I don't have kids, it must be because God's working. Something. No, she's thinking, man, Jacob, it's your fault, brother. I mean, it is your fault. If I don't, if you don't, if I don't have kids right now, I'm just going to kill myself. No, friends, that is the utterance of someone who's got a lot of inner emptiness and is trying to fill that with some sort of temporary satisfaction. In this case, again, having kids. We see it in Jacob. We see it in Leah. We see it in Rachel. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we see it in ourselves. That inner emptiness is similar, dynamic. We feel detached from God. We're not getting the things that we think we should have. Our ship hasn't come in. And we seek out temporary satisfaction. We seek out a certain kind of degree, a certain kind of job. We marry a certain kind of person. We accrue a certain kind of income. We have a certain kind of position that says, now I've made it. Now I've got a certain level of position that I deserve. Boy, this feels pretty good. Again, if we really search our souls, we know that's temporary. That we know this temporary. Because the reality is that in the morning, at the end of the day, it's always less than what we thought. And in the, kind of, you know, in the words of scripture, in the morning, it's always Leah. Jacob wanted Rachel. He couldn't wait till Rachel. He waited all these years. I want Rachel. And then in the teepee, it's like, oh my goodness, what, what's going on here? It's Leah. And there's some level of disappointment in the ways that we fulfill our inner emptiness. Because in the morning, when the morning comes, it's always Leah. There was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Because you see, in the morning, it's always Leah. It's less than what we think. We want the Rachels of the world. We want to fill that inner emptiness with that temporary satisfaction. But in the end, we get something far less. Or early in, in, in pastoral ministry, um, you know, and I, I know this is terribly fleshy, um, but the one thing that got around a lot was the kind of phone you had. I know it's weird, like, you know, I just wanted a phone. I just got a regular phone. But then when you start interacting with pastors and ministers, and they kind of look at your phone and go, dude, like, what's, what is that? Like, you got to get with it. <laughs> like, I had a regular phone that just takes calls. I didn't do email, didn't do text. It just took calls. I, like, why are you putting me down for having a phone? And so they started introducing all these other types of phones. And back then, the, like, one of the early smartphones was the um, Coisier. Do you guys remember those? Like, I had, like, you know, like after a regular phone, I got the Corsair, and I just felt like I was with the in crowd, right? And back then, those phones were like huge. It was, it was like a, 
you know, it was a weighty paperweight almost, you know. But it worked, right? You could do email on it. You could, you could like, call people and do all your stuff. And then all my other friends who were, like, beyond this, right, started talking to me about the trios. And just, hey, you know, you, you got to get with it, man. you got to get with the trio. So I got the trio 700 and the trio 800. And I'm feeling pretty good. Like, I feel like a really successful pastor now because I got the right phone. And then all my BlackBerry friends are like, dude, come on, man. Get with it. Like, like that thing does not move as fast as the BlackBerry. You've got to get... You've got to get the BlackBerry. So I got the BlackBerry, the plastic one, and the silver one, and the titanium one. I mean, you just cycle through these things, right? And then all my iPhone pastors is like, dude, come on, BlackBerry, iPhone, is there really a comparison? <laughs> really, come on. And I was really never an iPhone guy, but all of a sudden I became an iPhone guy. I had to have iPhone 1, 2, 3, 4, 5C, 5S. I couldn't just have the 6. I had, the six, I had to get the 6 Plus because that was the latest and greatest. The crazy thing is it doesn't matter, right? Like I, I, I'm thinking iPhone 7 is going to come out soon and I'm going to be behind. No matter how much I strive to get the best and to fill whatever emptiness I have with something strong, in the morning it's always Leia. It's something always less than what I anticipated. And I think that's the point of this passage, that, that Jacob really thought that, that Rachel would be the fulfillment of his deepest desires. Man, if I can just have Rachel, I'm away from home, I haven't seen my, 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 my mom, and, and Esau's going to kill me. But boy, if I just had Rachel, Leah's thinking, man, if I just had a few more kids, I think Jacob might love me. Because I haven't been loved my entire life, but if I could have a couple more kids, I know that Jacob would go for me. And Rachel, kind of the, the star, right? She's kind of like the, the star of this whole thing, right? And she goes, man, I'm barren. What's going on? And her inner emptiness demands having a child. But in the end, in the morning, it's always Leah. There is that disappointment. <clears throat> One year, um, Snoopy had an interesting conversation with Charlie Brown. Um, every year, it was a traditional thing to... Uh, to have Thanksgiving dinner together, right? Charlie Brown had to uh, break the bad news to him this year because, because of budget cuts, it was really tough that he, he couldn't invite Snoopy to Thanksgiving dinner. And so Charlie had to break the bad news and say, I'm, I'm really sorry. This year, we just can't do Thanksgiving dinner. We've had, to, had budget cuts, so we can't invite as many people. And I'm sorry, you didn't, make the, you didn't make the list. But Snoopy was an incredibly wise dog. He was not an ordinary dog. And he responded to Snoopy, said, I mean, to Charlie Brown, I said, wow, okay. You know, it's a little hurtful. But, um, you know, at least I'm not the turkey. At, at least I, you know, he's rationalized to himself. It could be a far worse because it, be, it could have been a lot worse. At least I'm not the turkey, right? Um, <clears throat> many of us or all of us, right, after the retreat, will we'll drive away, um, hopefully, in, in cars that we're comfortable with and but maybe, you know, maybe as you're driving, you know, you see these other, like, really fancy, luxurious cars. And maybe there's a temptation in your mind to say, man, like, why am I driving this when I could be driving that? But then you think about this message that, that was preached, and you go, oh, you know, it could be a lot worse. At least I have a car. I have a minivan that can house all these kids. I have, you know, a vehicle. There, there are people who don't have a vehicle, and you start to think, man, it could be a lot worse. Just like Snoopy Brown's, like, it could be a lot worse. At least I wasn't the turkey. Right? You kind of intuit to yourself, man, this is cool. We're all going to get to homes, 
right? Where hopefully we have houses that we're comfortable with. And for whatever reason, at that moment, as you're jiggling the keys to get into your home, you start to get really, really like, man, you know, like why am I living in this house when all my other friends are living in these amazing, luxurious homes and doing well financially, but I got to live in this house. But then again, you start thinking, man, but I remember the message, you know, it could be a lot worse. There are people in this world that don't have any homes. At least I have a home. It could be a lot worse. You know, at least I have a home. And, uh, you know, after a good night's sleep, you know, those of us who are married, right, after a good night's sleep, we get up in the morning, we're tussling and, and rolling in our beds, and we roll over and we look at our spouse and we say, hmm, it could be a lot worse. <laughs> at least, at least I'm married. There are a lot of people in the world that are not married. I'm married, man. <laughs> Some of the people are like, I don't know how to... How to take this. Because <laughs> in the morning, it's always Leah. You may think, man, I got the best. I married the best. You know, I, like, we got Jesus, man. Like, that's, that's who fills our emptiness. But sometimes, you know, we use earthly things to fill our emptiness. But in the morning, it's always Leah. And we got to keep reminding ourselves, like, if this happened to the royal line of God, right? Here's like, I mean, how often do we see or hear about the exploits of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? It's like, these are amazing men of God. Like, we need to follow them. They struggled with inner emptiness, just like us. And they also filled that inner emptiness with temporary securities, just like us. But what's beautiful as we progress into this passage, is that we begin to see that transition as this group, as, as this, the, the, the men and women of God begin to realize, man, I can't keep, being, keep filling my inner emptiness with temporary satisfaction. Let's ask ourselves a really good question. Why do we take matters into our own hands instead of waiting for God's best for us? I think legitimately we're just impatient. We, do, we like taking matters into our own hands. We do that regularly at our jobs. We do that regularly in life. We're impatient. We, that's what we do. We're talented enough. We've got enough results with the way that we do things that we don't have to wait for God to you know, challenge us or, or, or to fill us. It's like we can just do this on our own. How do we know if we've crossed the line? How do we know if something or someone is becoming a temporary security? That was a question that came up in some of our dinner conversations, right? We talked a lot about this, right? The things that should be a distant second all of a sudden become at the same level as God. How do we know if that thing that's a distant second it all of a sudden is rivaling our allegiance to God? Here's some, I think, helpful, possible, you know, uh, responses that, that we begin to sacrifice good things in order to keep it. Now think about that for a moment, Right? I think the common one that I hear a lot about is like, man, if we want a certain kind of house, right, a certain kind of living, we're going to have to work a lot later, right? Instead of coming home at 6 now, I'm going to have to come home at 7.38. So what are you sacrificing? Part of your family time. You're sacrificing your special time with your kids, special time with your wives. So now you're willing to sacrifice good things in order to keep that, that this, this fantasy habit, this fantasy thing that you want. So if we're doing that, maybe there's that temporary security developing, that thing that should be a distant second is all of a sudden becoming primary. If we're willing to sacrifice good things in order to keep this particular habit that we're dreaming about. Often when people give you feedback on it, when people give you just constructive feedback, we get defensive. Because we know we're protecting something that doesn't last, right? 
I mean, when we're, we're protecting something that we know is fragile, that like we want to keep, and people start criticizing, you know, it's it's hard to take. Chances are that there is some sort of temporary security there that we're trying to keep, just so that we stay above water. And I think God is challenges. Hey, is that really the way to fill your emptiness? Chances are that you may be devastated if you lost it. You know, whether it's a physical item, whether it's a philosophy that you have or what you're known for or, or certain success that you have that apart from Christ, you would be devastated if we didn't have that certain car or certain, you know, uh, reputation or a house that we have or, or kind of life that we have. It's like we're so accustomed to that and we'd be devastated if we lost it. My, trans, my, my notes also have, it's also the cause of our worries. Generally, when we're trying to protect something, there's a lot of worry because we're not certain about it. We derive a lot of energy from it and worth from it. So this is just a help, helpful guide to see, like, what are we filling our inner emptiness with? But here's the cool thing I love about this passage, and it's the third axiom, and it's this. Are we okay? Can we go to the next one? I think we're there, right? Can you advance it? Oh, there we go. Oh, sorry about that. So here, here is the third axiom I think is so encouraging. That the deepest longings of our hearts can only be satisfied by God. That the deepest longings of our hearts can only be satisfied by God. And check this out. And this is where Leah really, uh, really gets it. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. That's an interesting, again, interesting set of words there. If you actually read the story of, of Rachel and Jacob and Leah, she actually has several more children after this. But what was the difference? She stopped having children for the wrong reasons, to try to please Jacob. Somehow, somehow she came to the realization that what she really needed was God. And so when she has Judah, she names him Judah because this is what she begins to do. She begins to put God first. And she begins to praise God and in, in, her, in her own way says, you know, I, I, I like this guy, Jacob, but he's not worth it. He's a good man, but I'm not going to live for him anymore. You know, I'm tired of living for him. He's not worth it. I'm going to praise God. And so she has Judah and she has several kids afterwards. So she stops having children for the wrong reasons. And check this out. It's, it's even cooler. Is that Genesis 49.10 tells us that the line of Christ actually comes through Leah and Judah, not through Jacob and Rachel. Isn't that, isn't that powerful? That the line of Christ, right, comes through uh, Jacob and Leah, right, Judah, and not um, uh, Jacob and, and, and Rachel. And look, listen to this. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. What are we talking about? The scepter, Jesus Jesus' line comes through the line of Leah and Judah. So it is true that God will take the weak things of the world. And his power will be manifested through weakness. So that there's no doubt that God is in control. And we think of, you know, Jacob and, and Isaac and Abraham. And they're awesome. They're like, they're like the all-star team. But it's very interesting if you actually read the fine print. It's actually through weakness that we see the power of God being manifested. And that although in the morning it's always Leah, but it's actually the Leah types that experiences the fullness and the power of God. And if you're sitting here this morning and you kind of feel yourself like a little Leah, 
that maybe you've always been kind of second or overlooked and you feel like, man, you know, like, well, God used me. I just want to really, really encourage you that the power of God can be manifested through you with just what you can offer or your heart. You don't have to be the most talented person in the room. You don't have to be the most famous person in the room because God will use that weakness for his glory. How and why? Because you see, remember last night we talked about Abraham walking Isaac up that hill and, and he was asked to slay his one and only son and, and God said, hey, now I know that you love me. Now I know you love me because you're willing to slay your one and only son. 2,000 years later, right, God's own son walked up a similar hill and God said, look, I need you to do this for the world. You're going to be slain for the sins of mankind. And God did not withhold his one and only son. And he allowed his one and only son to die in weakness so that we can be strong. And if we put our faith in that God that walked up that hill, the son of God, and he was not spared. And as we see power through weakness and as we put our faith in him, we too will have that same power to put whatever that thing is a distant second and to praise God the way Leah did. That's it. That's it. To put our faith in him, to be able to praise God and say, you are God, God alone, and we're going to follow you. And all these other things that are so attractive, all these other things that kind of, uh, you know, uh, wage for our attention all the time, we can say, no, you are a distant second. Because we know in the morning it's always Leah, but in the end... We praise God because of who he is, and we walk in strength because God is a God of weakness in in terms of reaching out to those who can't take care of themselves. And I'm thinking like everybody in this room can have that sense that, man, God loves me. He is for me. He's not against me. He's not waiting for me to be good. He's not waiting for me to be perfect or have that great income. No, he loves me, and he accepts me because he did not spare his one and only son. And he gave his son to the world for us. And that's the strength that we have. So today, let's praise God. Praise the Lord for who he is and what he's done. And we walk out of this retreat in strength, putting those things that are second in our lives, truly a distant second, to fill our inner emptiness with the praise of God and not these things that are second, not these temporary securities. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to a close at this retreat, We confess to you the temptation of this world, those things that should be a distant second, this chasm that should exist between our love for you and love for things and people. God, that that should exist. We confess to you many times that chasm doesn't exist. In fact, it's sometimes hard to know who we worship and what we praise because the thing that's the next great thing is so close. If anything, if any message has been clear during this retreat, it's that our declaration that you are God alone, that we worship you and we praise you and we follow you today. Help us, God, to create that chasm so that our love for you is so supreme, it's as if we hate our parents. It's as if we hate our kids. It's as if we hate our family members. That's our heart's desire, God, that our praise for you and our worship of you would be so supreme, so um, majestic, so full of so much magnitude of your greatness that it would be as if all these other things pale in comparison. 
God, move us in that direction. Let us be a people who are like that. As the scriptures say, that we might shine in the darkness, in a generation, so that all may see that we follow you, the God of the universe, the creator, and the one who sustains us. Help us now, God, to come out of this retreat, filling our inner emptiness with you, and not a cheap substitute, and not a false God, and not anything that even resembles temporary security. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.